Hello and welcome to Beth Takoon and this Spiritual Season series. In this group of teachings, we are diving into how each Torah portion fits into its place in the yearly calendar according to the annual pattern of salvation, God's yearly curriculum. This week we are in Parsha Naso from the middle of Numbers chapter 4 through the end of chapter 7. Naso means lift up and is from the first topic of the Parsha and a verse where God tells Moses to lift up the heads of the Gershonites of the uh, a clan of the Levites to count them. So as we've mentioned previously, lifting the head is a Hebrew idiom for taking a census. So the Parsha begins with God telling Moses to count the Gershonite clan. Now so is the longest portion in the Torah because one of the chapters in Naso is a whopping 89 verses, the chapter detailing how each of the leaders of the 12 tribes presents gifts for the inauguration of the tabernacle. And they bring wagons, oxen, silver plates and bowls, gold dishes filled with incense, various animals for sacrifice. Though each of the 12 brought the same gifts when the tabernacle was inaugurated, Each tribe's gift is repeated independently, 12 times, which is what makes chapter 7 of Bamidbar Numbers such a long chapter. These inauguration gifts come near the end of the Parsha. As I mentioned, the portion begins with the census and commissioning of the Gershonites when they are not only counted but also told what their specific responsibilities will be in regards to transporting and setting up the tabernacle. So if you remember, last week's portion ended, well, two weeks ago now. Last week was Shavuot, but Parsha Bamidbar ends uh, with the counting and commissioning of the Kohathite Levites, that clan, Kohath. And so it strikes us as a bit strange. It's a bit strange that the two clans of Gershon and Merari are separated from Kohath by the Parsha break. But Midbar is the Kohathites. Here we start with the Gershonites and the Merarites eventually. So why are they split into two portions? Well, we'll talk about that a bit later. But as the portion moves forward, past the Levites being called to their areas of service and being counted, we can say that we have three topics that rather clearly are about cleaning house, cleansing The first topic is God's command that Israel go ahead and actually exclude the unclean people uh, from the camp, put them on the outskirts of the camp. And so they'd been given laws regarding putting the unclean out of the camp earlier, and here they're actually told, okay, now's the time to do it. The next two topics related to cleansing are, one, the laws for making restitution when one has sinned against God or against mankind, how do you, you know, you add a fifth, for example, and pay it back if it's a monetary damage that's been done. Uh, The second topic, um, or the third one related to cleansing here, actually, is the test for the suspected adulteress, the sotah. 
And then the topic after those three is laws related to the vow of the Nazarite, the man or woman who specially consecrates himself or herself to God and who must stay clean in special ways. We then have the priestly blessing, right, the Birkat Kohanim, which is followed by the inauguration offerings from Israel's tribal leaders, which we mentioned earlier. At the very end of the portion, we read the description of how God would talk with Moses in the tabernacle. And that's the very, the last few verses are about that. So let's do a little work now to place Parsha Naso in the flow of the calendar in the portions that come before it and after it. We're seeing here in Naso and in the previous portion, which is Bamidbar, how God is helping Israel to make final preparations before beginning the 40-year journey. So up to this point, Israel was receiving the Torah and building the tabernacle. In the next portion, we will actually see them set out from Mount Sinai. They leave to die. Right? We talked about the Midbar being connected as the, the place of extreme death forces and God saying very clearly, I'm going to have you... Uh, journey through the wilderness 40 years so that this generation dies. So they leave to die. We're nearing that moment in the text when a new phase will begin, when they will become something like a nomadic people. Remember, they've been slaves in Egypt, and now they're becoming a nomadic people for a whole generation. And um, they're becoming a people who must embrace the punishment of having to spend this whole generation in the barren desert. And so what we're seeing here at the start of this new book of Bamidbar are the final preparations before that 40-year journey begins. We began seeing these final preparations in Bamidbar, as I said earlier, and we continued to see these last bits of prep in Nassau and in the first half of next week's portion. And it's really a momentous time. For the nation. What do the final preparations look like for a nation of three million people to begin 40 years of dying? But it's not just dying, of course, though um, that's one of the main purposes for the 40 years in the wilderness. It's also 40 years of walking with God and learning how to walk with God in a special way. Four decades of walking Bamidbar in his voice, in his speech. It's 40 years of every day digging graves over here, but that's just one thing that's happening in the wilderness. Over here are new babies that they are welcoming into the tents. And so the cries of of anguish and burying the deceased literally are mixing with the cries of joy and relief at the birth of the next generation, the generation that will go into the land. It's 40 years of miraculous manna and water from the rock, 40 years of Moses leading, talking face-to-face with God. It's 40 years of God giving more and more authority over to the people, allowing them to more and more walk in faith with him. That phase of Israel's development is about to begin. In a way, it's an in-between phase, like adolescence. And we all know that the journey of adolescence is really a fraught one. 
but they're in between. They're in between Egypt on one side and the land of Canaan, the promised land, on the other side. So I really have trouble leaving places, I'm ashamed to say. I'm forever going back to look around to see if I left something. I just don't ever remember what I'm holding and what I put down. And <laughs> so I just have to scan and scan before I leave. And it's really worst. It's at its worst when I have to leave my house for a few days. It's, it's pretty OCD, I have to say, um, if I'm being honest. So first, I usually run around the outside watering my plants like a crazy person. Then I get the car loaded up and I go back to the house for a final check. And that's when the problems start. So I check that the stove burners are off and the windows are closed and the doors are locked. And then I wonder, did I check if the burners are off on the stove? Oh, yeah, I probably did. But let me check that again just so I can feel okay with it and set the thermostat. I double check that the faucets are off and the refrigerator is closed. And then I think, well, did I check the burners on the stove? <laughs> let me just check those again. And so it's, it's a bit silly. And I kind of chuckle at myself, in fact. I just don't want to get in the car and be an hour away and think, what if the refrigerator is open for three days? So um, there's an art to leaving, and it's one that I haven't mastered at all. Um, But we can learn some lessons here from Israel and how, um, as they prepare to launch out, you know, we can learn some lessons in how we can prepare to launch out to a higher level of service you know, maybe we've been given more authority or more responsibility. There are lessons here for new parents, for example, or for those who have been promoted at work and find themselves with more responsibility, a new job, a new phase, a new level. And from another perspective, there are lessons here for all of us walking through these spiritual seasons together. We're all coming into a new phase that is marked by Shavuot, which we've just come through. So, because we read Parsha Naso now, like Israel, we're also preparing to leave Mount Sinai. And so, as I said, we've just come through the Moed of Shavuot, which we honor as the day of the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's as if we came to the foot of Mount Sinai, now on the other side of Shavuot, we're leaving Mount Sinai or preparing to leave. And maybe we tarry there for just a bit before we head into the wilderness with Israel in the next Torah portion. You know, we are launching out into that sunny midbar just as summer is coming upon us. And it's just getting to those temperatures just this week here in Ohio. So this is a case where the calendar and the portions are particularly aligned. And as we read about how God helps Israel to prepare for the long, long journey ahead, we can be looking for lessons that apply to us now in the calendar as we say goodbye to Shavuot and head into that long summer. So what changes is God making in the nation? Like, how do they look different? Uh, What messages is he sending to Israel at this point, both in the changes he's making in Israel, and in the placement of certain commandments or groups of commandments here in the text, in the Torah portions. 
And we can ask another question. What do these messages at this point have to do with entering the phase of adolescence? In the last teaching on Shavuot, we talked about how in the yearly calendar, after experiencing a rebirth at Passover, we're now beginning the phase of the calendar we would call adolescence. And we also called that an engagement to God, although not the finalization of the marriage. But particularly, we focused on the idea of adolescence. As we think about these portions in terms of preparations for the 40-year journey, let's first think back to Parsha Bamidbar, last week's portion, which was the first in the new book of Numbers, Bamidbar. Um, Bamidbar begins with a census. You know, we just said that this portion also does. So as they set out on a new journey, as they enter adolescence, God lifts each head, looks them in the eye, and says, you are part of Israel, and you count. You are necessary. You have a place here, and we need you. And how vital is it for us to hear this as we enter into the period of our lives when we can become absolutely consumed with comparing ourselves to others. And social media makes it so much easier for these teens to be comparing themselves to each other. But it just kind of goes with the territory. Clearly, we should not be comparing ourselves to each other, but teens are prone to this. And I think they just don't have the wisdom to realize the psychological, the emotional effect that doing that it takes on them. Well, next in Bamidbar, you know, after that census, God arranges the tribes into groups for camping and marching. Three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here. The Levites in the middle around the tabernacle. So on the one hand, he, he's bringing a kind of practical order that will make the next phase possible in a practical sense. And someone has to go first as Israel travels, you know, sometimes narrow paths and, you know, through wilderness canyons. Sometimes that's the best way to go is to follow the water, maybe, up a cliff uh, and through a canyon. Uh, sometimes along caravan routes, across maybe mountain passes, over plains, following God into places both known and unknown. And someone has to go second, and someone has to go third, and on. And so there's a ranking that God gives them. And there's, um, there's an order that he's giving. And I think that sense of order, uh, that push toward order, is vital for, for a brain of adolescence that in some ways is becoming a bit disordered, right? They need a lot of discipline and order on the outside. So one message that comes out of the organization of the camp, you know, another message besides just, here's some order for you, um, is that each member of Israel has a special place within the body, a place for which they and only they are created to fit, a place of service to the body that only they can do. And isn't that a vital message to speak to a young teen. You are designed for a special place of service that no one else is able to do exactly like you. 
start to seek out that place of service now. And I think teens can begin to do that, to, to get a sense of, I'm a little bit better than most other people in this area, but definitely not in this area. They're starting to be able to get a sense of that uh, at the age of 12, 13. And they can be encouraged that God will help them to discover their unique identity. So a message like that, uh, that they're uniquely created for a special role, it, it helps them to accept how they are made. You know, teens just get all bent out of shape about the shape of their body compared to some other shape of somebody else's body or the models they see on TV and actors and actresses. And, and it's a rough part of uh, coming to terms with coming into your adulthood, um, just seeing the person who you are becoming. Um, we're very hard on ourselves. So you might not be as good looking as that person over there, or you might not be as athletic as that person over there. You might not be as smart as another person over there. Uh, but you're made exactly as you are because you are made to fit into a certain place. Accept the way he made you. Appreciate the way he made you. And thank him for it. And I think these are messages that we have to remind ourselves of all throughout life. Because sometimes we can do the work of coming to terms with how God made us, and then we somehow let go of that, and we forget. We have to come back to it. So again, we're not talking about accepting sin. We don't look at ourselves and accept the sin there. We're just talking about accepting the skills he's given us and the ones he hasn't, and the genes he's given us and the one he hasn't, and the ones he hasn't given us and the context he's put us into in life as well. Our family, our friends, our place, our time. You are made for your family, your place. You're made for your time because you have what's needed to be God's eyes and God's hands and God's feet in exactly that place in that time, in that family. If we have not accepted who God made us to be, we can never experience real peace. Rabbi Avraham Trugman made this connection in a recent teaching. He says that uh, a simple statement he heard from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, who is his rabbi, had a profound effect on his experience of Shabbat. So Rabbi Ginsburg said, in order to enjoy the Shabbat to its fullest, a person needs to be satisfied with who they are. You might not put those two ideas together. In order to really enjoy the Sabbath to its depth, you have to be satisfied with who you are. So you want to really enjoy the Sabbath, take a moment to be fully satisfied. Take a little bit of work to do that with who God has made you to be and what he has given you to work with in life. You know, Friday as the Shabbat is beginning, maybe. So do that bit of work on yourself, and it will open the day. It will open the doorway to experiencing Shabbat in its fullness. And I think this is because 
knowing who we are in God and in the body and appreciating that, being satisfied with that, is vital for putting ourselves in a constant state of inward rest and peace. And it is this deep foundation that's we're going to hear that foundation most loudly and most profoundly on Shabbat when we become quiet, right? Whatever's, you know, whatever we're harboring down there, um, the waters in there, if they're troubled waters, that's, we're going to hear that echo as we calm ourselves down for the Sabbath. And if it's, if we're at peace, down deep inside, we'll hear that too on the Shabbat because everything gets just a little bit quieter on the Shabbat or maybe a lot quieter. And so I think that's a pretty profound thing. And Rabbi Trugman said, hearing Rabbi Ginsburg say that really profoundly, you know, changed his approach to Shabbat. So moving forward with messages we are getting at this time in preparation for a new phase we come to the current portion, Naso. So we just went back through Bamidbar, thinking about what do those messages of Bamidbar have to do with starting a new phase, launching out, adolescence. And now we come to Naso with that same question. So I mentioned that we see the connection, you know, one connection to Bamidbar right off the bat in that Naso also begins with a census, the counting of the Gershonites in this case. Again, the message, everyone counts, is really a dominant theme running through these chapters, the lifting of the head in the counting, you count. But I want to return to the the question now of why this commissioning of the Levite clans is split across the two portions. Since Nassau is such a long portion, it would have maybe even been more natural to extend Bamidbar just a bit longer to include the census and commissioning of the other two Levite clans, right? There's plenty of room to give to uh, Bamidbar, and it would have balanced the portions maybe a bit more in length. The idea the rabbis discuss here is partly that Breaking the text between the Kohathites and the Gershonites places the Gershonites at the beginning of a portion, and this is an honor to them. You know, Gershon is actually the firstborn of Levi, um, and uh, Kohath is the secondborn. But as in so many cases in Scripture, the secondborn is the one that rises up and is given the most honor here. Uh, but in this case, the Gershonite census begins this Torah portion, and that, the rabbis say, is a way to honor the Gershonites. So they might be second in terms of the holy objects they carry and that they tend, but in this portion, they're first. They might be part of the lower body rather than the head, but the lower body is powerful and is vital for enabling the spirit to act in this world. Again, even in this break between the Torah portions, we're seeing that same idea coming through that everyone counts, everyone's vital, even. Well, the next several topics, as I mentioned earlier in the summary, deal with cleansing in various ways. And so we want to ask again, what do these have to do with setting out on a new journey? And so, um, 
again, those topics just quickly are separating the unclean from the camp, putting them outside the camp. Secondly, laws regarding making restitution for sin against God and man. And the sota, the the test for the suspected adulteress. Cleansing always follows stepping higher with the Lord. You step higher, there's a cleansing. You step higher, there's a cleansing. So what is the message here? to the adolescent embarking on a new journey, the message is you have sin lurking within your flesh and it's about to awaken with a new power that you maybe couldn't imagine before. When it does, don't coddle it. Don't accept it. To the degree you are able, put it out of the camp. When sin leads you to fall, Do what you can to make it right with God and your fellow man, right? Make restitution and know that sin is adultery and that it will be found out and it leads to death. It leads to separation. So it leads to separation between you and God to begin with, but also between you and others. So be about the work of cleansing your vessel so that you can be strong to follow, follow the leading of the Lord and do his work in the world. God requires a holy vessel. And so be that vessel and you can do it. He wouldn't even ask you to step up and do it if you couldn't do it. And if he wasn't going to help you to become that holy vessel. That's what life is all about here. So let's touch on the laws of the Nazarite, right? We had the Uh, the commissioning of the Gershonites and the Merarites. And then we had these three topics related to cleansing. Now we come to the the laws related to the Nazarite vow. So how does this fit? Let me read just a, a little from the beginning of this part of the portion, just to remind us what the Nazarite vow is about. It says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman, makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. And then it goes on from there. It's a vow of separation, someone separating himself or herself to the Lord, which is not very specific. Um, We're separated for different purposes. And the word separate here is nazar. And so that's where we get the word Nazarite from. So one taking this vow is to refrain from consuming anything that derives from any part of the grape. And he or she is to shave the head at the beginning of the vow and again at the end. And that hair is actually at the end is to be burned on the altar. And... um, the person taking the Nazarite vow is to avoid contact with a dead body during the vow. And it's just generally understood they're supposed to be keeping themselves at a higher level of cleanliness altogether. So what does it mean, again, that one sets himself or herself apart for God? So I said maybe there there are different reasons, and we see that in the Haftarah and in the Brit Hadashah, both of these readings. For Nasso, and they give us two cases where God Himself sets apart two people 
as Nazarites from birth. And so we can start trying to look for examples of why someone would do this by looking at the ones that God chose for this separation. So God selects, um, well, so for the, in the half Torah, it's the story of the birth of Samson. And uh, he was set apart to God. For what purpose? Do you remember? It's for the purpose of beginning to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And those Philistines were just a perennial thorn in Israel's side. And the story from the Brit Hadashah is the conception of John the Baptist. So in both of these cases, angels are speaking to the parents. And, um, and the angel uh, who speaks to Zechariah, he says, you know, God has set him apart for a special purpose, for preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. So Samson began fighting the Philistines. John the Baptist prepare the way for the Messiah. In both cases, uh, the angels say that uh, before their birth, that they are not to have any strong drink. They're not to drink any wine. And so they are Nazarites from birth. And Samson's mother is actually told he will be a Nazarite from birth. So uh, God fills uh, both of them, both Samson and John the Baptist, with a special gifting. And in the case of John the Baptist, it says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they're gifted to achieve the purposes for which they were set aside by God. So in these two examples, they're very different from each other. Uh, but we see that there can be a diversity of reasons for why one would be set aside as a, as a Nazarite. But why would someone set himself or herself aside? Here we're talking about God setting two aside. Why would someone take on a vow like this? Well, Rabbi Trugman brings what is thought to be the primary reason for the Nazarite vow. And it's a little bit surprising. I was a little bit surprised to hear the explanation. The Jewish tradition is very valuable here because the Torah doesn't explain why one would be separating himself or herself or God. Rabbi Trugman says that according to the Jewish understanding, the one who takes a Nazarite vow is thought to be one who is struggling to control his or her desires and passions and wants to do something to reach out to God for healing, for subduing the flesh. So this could be an addiction of some kind, whether addiction to a substance or a behavior. And this is especially symbolized here as wine in these commandments regarding the Nazarite vow. So drunkenness and alcohol addiction, it was a problem then as it is now. And the prophets and Proverbs in particular are full of warnings and even accusations regarding widespread overindulgence in wine and drunkenness. The prohibition on wine is so severe for the Nazarite that he or she is not to consume even products made from the skin or the seeds of the grapes. Just don't go near it or anything related to it. Absolute avoidance. And so there's a lesson there in how we should approach those areas of the flesh that hold such dominance over us. Well, people could spot a Nazarite by their shaved head. So if 
most of these vows were taken for the sake of this kind of battle with the flesh, I mean, they're, they're kind of admitting openly, I'm struggling with something, right? And you can tell because I have a shaved head, I'm, I've taken a Nazarite vow. And so this first step of, you know, it's really to humble yourself and be willing to admit publicly that you're struggling with something severe and that your heart's desire is for purity in relationship with God. And so that's another lesson for us. Be willing to humble yourself and admit it, you know, if you if you're need to or to be able to get the help that you need. So you can imagine uh, the power that such a vow has. The action of shaving the head is not only the point of making your vow public, uh, but it's also a way to say, all that has grown out of my life up to this point, all that I have accomplished and put out into the world, whether good or bad, it's gone. I'm shaving it off. It's, it's being put away. And this is a new start. The Nazarite is dedicating himself or herself to the Lord as holy, as set apart, knowing how very, very seriously God takes such a vow, knowing how breaking such a vow would open one to dire consequences, because our God is a jealous God. What is dedicated to him cannot be withdrawn, right? If you take that vow and you dedicate yourself to the Lord for the time of the vow in a special way, and there's a weight on you that you've done something that God cares a lot about, and he is jealous to protect a vow like that, a a giving over of self to him. So there's a lot of motivation there and a lot of power there to cease the behavior and not become impure while in this set-apart state. The Quixote Komish says the following, which I think also speaks to the great power of this vow. It says, The institution of Nazarithood teaches us that we can rise so high in sanctity that our physical bodies become holy objects. Right? We are a temple, right? But so often... We're not treating it as holy. And the Quixote Comish is saying, you know, this Nazarite vow is helping us to see that, in fact, you can make your body into a holy vessel with his help and his grace. So with that background, we can see many ways that this topic of the Nazarite fits into the flow we've been talking about. First, we can see a connection to the cleansing here that... um, Many who took this vow were trying to overcome a besetting sin. We can also see here a couple of messages to the adolescent or the nation about to head off into the midbar. One, understand the great power of sin to wreck your life. And two, know that as much as sin can become, you know, come to dominate a life, as huge as that giant can grow, God is vastly bigger still. And there is healing. It takes humility. It takes courage. It takes 
persistence. It also took quite a bit of money. You know, they had to bring offerings at the end. Um, But God has provided a pathway for salvation, a pathway for salvation. He has given it to us. So beyond these topics that focus on cleansing, we have three topics all about connection next. The priestly blessing is given next after the Nazarite vow. Uh, Commandments regarding that. So we have the priestly blessing, the tabernacle inauguration gifts given by the tribes, the people, through their leaders, and the description of how Moses spoke with God in the tabernacle. And so I think in these three that focus on imparting life and connection, the message to the adolescent on the cusp of a new journey is this. Your destiny is a good one. It is blessing, unity and service, and intimacy with God. Your destiny is the blessing of the priests, the unity of bringing gifts to God as a community. You know, each one brings the same offering, but each one, and God even says, do them on different days. And they're listed separately. So there's a uniqueness somehow within that community. Um, There's a a unity there. That's your destiny. And the intimacy of speaking with God face-to-face like Moses did, that's also your destiny. This is where you are headed as you step out onto that dry and barren road. The road might start in the desert, but it doesn't end there. It ends with streams of living water flowing from under the entrance of the temple. Well, the last teaching point here I want to bring out before moving on to briefly focus directly on Yeshua is to point out a few progressions here that echo the salvation pattern and help us to see how God thinks, how God thinks and how he organizes the world and his word It might be useful to check out the notes, which I have a link for uh, below the video, because I'm going to go pretty quickly through several of these progressions, and you can see them listed in the notes. So the first progression comes out of Grant's last point in this week's Parsha Seasonings video. Grant draws our attention to the fact that this inauguration day of the tabernacle is mentioned in three consecutive books. This day when the tabernacle is set up, inaugurated. It's mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Numbers, but each time with a slightly different emphasis. And so the way I'm going to explain that difference um, in emphasis is to ask, who's coming to dwell in the tabernacle? So in Exodus, God comes to dwell in the tabernacle as his presence fills it, right? Set up the tabernacle and it's filled with smoke, Um, it's filled with the presence of God. So in Leviticus, the priests are installed in the tabernacle, um, installed in their service at the tabernacle. So first God, then the priests. Here in Numbers, the 12 princes representing the people bring their gifts to the priests at the tabernacle. And so we see here in a way the people beginning to come in and dwell in the tabernacle. So this Progression again is God first, then the priests, 
and then the people, high, middle, and low. So God thinks this way. We can constantly see these kinds of progressions in the way God sets things up in the Word and in His world. We need to begin to notice them. The second progression that I want to talk about is found in the names of the Levite clans. Remember, there are three of them for the three sons of Levi. The first to be counted and given their specific work is Kohath, the second Gershon, and the third Merari. So the first group, the Kohathites, is responsible for the furniture of the tabernacle, and that's the holiest, the holiest articles. The second is responsible for the soft parts of the tent. It's the middle level of Kedusha and holiness. And the third group is given responsibility for the bars and sockets, which are the bones of the tabernacle. Still very holy, but the least uh, holy, we can say, of the three. And so the three names, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari, they mean, respectively, assembly, exile, and bitter. So listen again to the meanings of those names and see if you can spot a progression. You know, maybe, maybe you'll need to pause it and think about it for a minute, but the three names are one, assembly, two, exile, and three, bitter. Well, um, did you notice that the names move from unity to separation? Unity is a characteristic of the spiritual realm. And this realm down here is described as the realm of separation. So here we have in these names some kind of, uh, some kind of manifestation of the spiritual in the physical, right? Uh, again, unity is a characteristic of the spiritual realm. And so the name Kohath, meaning assembly, is reflecting that higher spirituality, that place of unity, that place of assembly. And we see that higher place of spirituality in the service that's given to the Kohathites, the responsibility for the holiest objects. And the names come down lower from there. Gershon means exile. So when a spirit leaves the spiritual realm to come to earth, this is a kind of exile. Exile is in between. Uh, the Gershonites um, and their level of service is in the middle. And exile implies movement, movement like we've talked about the spirit implies movement, the ruach. This middle area is a, is a place of movement between one place and another place, one, one side and another side. So, Exile implies leaving one place and arriving at another place. And then lastly, the result of the exile is bitterness, Merari. And he's responsible for the bars and sockets. Bitterness is connected to the squeezing and confining of the physical realm. So once again, then, we have this progression. Another time we're seeing it here uh, from spiritual to physical, with a spiritual something in the middle that's a connector, or we could say a divider, and then the physical. And 
that progression is connected to the service of each of the clans. So one point to bring out here is that these three boys, these sons of Levi, got their names before they had done anything good or bad. Right? God inspired these names, as he does for all of us, our names. In other words, God had chosen roles for these boys and their descendants before they were born, each for a different degree of honor. He created everything about each of them to enable them and empower them to fulfill the service for which he created them. And he does the same for us. We are each given work that falls somewhere along the spectrum of emphasizing either the spiritual side or the physical side. And this is the work that we are created to do. We won't be productive if we are looking at someone else and saying, I want to do more spiritual work like that. Or I want to do work that makes me that kind of money. Growing up in the Lord is understanding that everyone counts, that every place has honor in the end, that all are needed, and that you are created to inhabit a certain place prepared for you. Well, lastly here, let's do a quick salvation pattern reading of the priestly blessing, the Berkat Kohanim. We're going to trace the story of salvation here in this God-designed and God-given blessing, this story of salvation. Does the Birka Kohanim, which is something that God designed for us to say to each other, to bring down his blessing on us from him, does it reflect the salvation pattern? Everything must, and something as important as this prayer, this blessing designed by God, must reflect the salvation pattern somehow. It has to be there. So, one, um, one of the ways that we are connecting to the story of salvation is through human development, from infancy, infancy to adulthood. So, listen for that progression as we go, um, along with other, other ways that we can see this progression of salvation in the priestly blessing. So the blessing starts with, may the Lord bless you and keep you. So bless is a general word, right? The whole thing is a blessing. But the first word is, may the Lord bless you. Um, it's kind of an undifferentiated, all-inclusive word. It's the seed word of blessing for the entire prayer. And so it's nice for someone to say, may God bless you, but it's quite general. So the next idea starts to unpack the seed. So again, that first line is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, and that word keep is the Hebrew word shamar or shomer. Keep is what a parent does with a child. Watch over, protect, guard. These are all translations of shomer or shamar. This is an action of God that applies especially to a very young phase of development. So the first line moves us from the general undifferentiated seed, we could say, just the idea of blessing in general, through the phase of childhood. The next line is, the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God shining his face upon us is the light of truth. This is a phase of education, like the giving of the Torah, 
a time of adolescence. Moving, you know, beyond that even, right? So we've got the seed, we've, we've had a, a time of childhood, time of adolescence and, and receiving the textbook and the education, the light, may his light shine upon you and be gracious to you. And so God being gracious to us implies that we have stumbled actually with that Torah and we're in need of his grace, right? We have pointed out many times that after we receive the light of the Torah, we are prone to stumbling as we see you know, we can see that in the calendar in the three weeks in the, the summer period, that three weeks of mourning, that includes Tishba'av. And that is followed by the judgment of the early fall, the 10 days, which is where we seek his grace, right? That time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So there is an expression here within the Berkat Kohanim of, of the idea that we need grace, Right? And it's coming at this point. And so the last line is, The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So turning the face to someone, that's a moment of connection. So after God extends his grace through the blood of the Lamb, right, presented at Yom Kippur, comes a point of reconnection with him, like the consummation of a marriage in the beginning of cohabitation, which we've likened to Sukkot, right? So there's a a point of entering adulthood. We've come now past the point of adolescence and into adulthood. And it's all just there to see in the priestly blessing. And then finally it says, and give you peace. The end goal of it all is peace, shalom, a deep echad, right? Which is a oneness made of multiple parts. And so, can you get a glimpse of how the priestly blessing designed by God is a precious jewel? It's a gift to mankind. It has the whole story of salvation in it. And God says, use this to bless each other and call down my blessing upon you. It is the story of Yeshua in miniature, poetic, beautiful. It is the same story we see in the calendar And in fact, it's the same story we see everywhere in the universe because the universe is made through Yeshua. And so let me point out here, lastly, that God finishes this passage by saying, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So what is the name God is putting on us through this blessing? Well, again, we've just seen that this Blessing is the story of salvation, a blessing that we would successfully walk with God through, you know, we're being blessed that we would walk successfully through each of the stages of salvation. So the name that God is putting on us through the Birkat Kohanim is Yeshua, it's salvation. That is the name that's being spoken forth in that blessing and that he's putting upon us is Yeshua. Well, speaking of Yeshua, let's keep our focus on him now as we close out these thoughts today. I'd like to draw two more quick points of connection between our discussion today and Yeshua. When we discussed the Nazarite vow, we mentioned that it's an encouragement to see that God has made a path of salvation for our enslavement to the flesh. 
And that way, in, in this context anyway, is called the Nazarite vow. Or we can say the Nazarite path of healing. Or the Nazarite path of salvation. Of course, believers see a deeper reference there. The Nazarite pathway to healing is the one who comes from Nazareth, Yeshua, his hometown, right? Not where he was born, which was Bethlehem, but his hometown where he grew up. So the very building I'm sitting in right now is called Southeast Church of the Nazarene. In other words, the building I'm sitting in, in Talmadge, Ohio, in the year 2023, is named for a poor man who lived 2,000 years ago in the ancient Middle East. He never wrote a book. He never left his, you know, his small area there. He never left the area of Israel. But the power he wielded ripples like shockwaves throughout time and space, such that this very space I'm sitting in, these walls here, and this time in 2023 reveals that power, you know. This building where believers meet, um, separated from Yeshua by two millennia, is named for Yeshua from Nazareth. And Yeshua is the true way of the Nazarite that the Nazarite vow pictures. It is he who is the source of the great power for healing found in this Nazarite vow. Well, lastly, I want to make a connection with the name Merari, which we connected with the lowest realm, right? The third of the brothers Levi. And so um, we connected Merari with the physical realm and the, the lowest service among the three clans of the Levites. We learned earlier that Merari means bitter. The name shares the same root with the name Mary or Miriam in Hebrew. Mary is the name of Yeshua's mother for a reason, and he was surrounded by so many women named Mary for a reason. These names are telling us that Yeshua fully entered the context of this physical world, this place of bitterness. Yeshua was born into the bitterness of the constriction of physicality as much as any of us are. In fact, he was born into a particularly fractious and bitter period in Jewish history, a time of great dissensions, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all these groups, this um, fighting for how the high priesthood would be run and over the calendar and over so many issues. So Yeshua wasn't born into a theologian's classroom and he wasn't born into a king's ivory tower, removed from the common things of this world. He was born to a woman named Bitter and placed in a feeding trough in what was probably a cave, right, for keeping livestock in, which is a hole in the earth. He grew up in Egypt and then in the Galilee which was not considered the spiritual heartland of the nation. The Galilee is located more on the physical side of Israel, not the spiritual side, which is the south. The fact that Yeshua came from backwater Galilee and not the spiritual heights of Judah was a stumbling block 
to some. So these details are designed to say to us, Yeshua knows what you're going through. The life he lived in the flesh was lived in a context of physicality that, that is as deep or deeper than yours. Yeshua was surrounded by the bitterness of this fallen world. And not only that, but Yeshua is the full antidote to the bitterness of a fallen world. Through Yeshua, the bitter waters are turned sweet. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for listening. As I mentioned, there's a link uh, posted for an outline below the video. May God bless us to know deeply in our souls that we count. May he bless us to find the place of service for which we are designed. May we never be afraid to humble ourselves so that we can come more fully under the wings of his protection and be healed. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.